The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, you can open to Nehemiah chapter 3. As you're opening there, I just want to say, if you look behind you, um, if you just look right back there, uh, there's a guy named Jim, a guy named Richard, and a guy named Riley. Riley drinking some coffee back there. Um, and uh, these guys just week in and week out and some others like them um, just work so, so that music happens and sound happens and slides happen. And we're really grateful for them. Can we just say thanks to them? Thank y'all. Really appreciate you guys. We're, we're in Nehemiah chapter three. We're in a series called Rebuilding. We've been through the book of Ezra. We're into Nehemiah. We'll take a short break for Easter, then continue in this series. It'll take us close to summer. In summer, we'll do a series called The Next Chapter, where we look at different great chapters of the Bible. And then this fall, Lord willing, we'll be in First and Second Peter, and uh, just kind of continuing to dive through the Word um, uh, my, my name's Chase, as I, I think I said, and there's a, a guy named Tim and a guy named Dave who also teach. And if you're new, we just kind of try to walk through books of the Bible and learn from the Lord together, believe his Holy Spirit teaches us as we do that. And we're going to continue to pray that he would do that. On Nehemiah chapter three and four, it tells the story of Israel beginning to build the wall uh, chapter three kind of tells the story of the building and then chronologically four, five, and six go back a little bit and talk about some of the tension that they deal with. And so in Nehemiah chapter four today, uh, we're gonna talk about a bully, which, uh, which is interesting to do because I hate bullies. When I was eight, uh, I had kind of my first experience with a bully. I was in a small school and there was a guy who... Um, who was just coming after people weaker than him. And, and honestly, I wasn't the weakest person in my class, but I wasn't far from that, so I knew he was coming after me. And I was afraid, and I got so afraid that when he started messing with me, you know, this is the early 80s, and uh, sat in a small school is really easy, you just fake throwing up and you can go home, right? So that's what I did. Uh, but my mom didn't think I was sick, so I thought I'll trick my mom, being the bright eight-year-old I was. So I poured Pepto-Bismol in the toilet, making mom think that I had gotten sick, but she didn't buy that. I, I don't know why. So my dad comes home and he says, son, what's going on? I tell him and he says, why haven't you defended yourself? Now let me just stop right here. This is not a message on parenting. I'm not saying what my dad, my dad told me was the right thing to say. I'm just going to tell you what he told me. So I said, Dad, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what this guy's going to do. I'm afraid I'll get in trouble. If you fight, you might get suspended. You guys have told me never get suspended. And my dad said, if you get suspended for defending yourself, I'll take you fishing. <laughs> well, I won't tell you the details of the rest of the story, but Dad and I had a great day. I'll just tell you that. <laughs> well, see, in Nehemiah... We're going to hear about a couple of bullies that come against the people of God. Now, they don't end up fighting. They're ready to, but they don't end up fighting. They trust God to fight for them. And we're going to see how today we can trust him to do that for us. But let's begin by just reading the first verse of Nehemiah chapter 3. And we're going to read the first verse of Nehemiah chapter 3 and kind of walk through it quickly, talk a little bit about it because it's lots and lots of names and lots of repetition. We'll talk about some of those things, though. Well, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, then Eliashib the high priest rose up 
with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. They set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur the son of Emery built. Now there are four questions that chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2 begin to answer for us. And I think they're important questions as we look at chapter 3 and as we remember why the temple was rebuilt in Ezra, why the walls being rebuilt in Nehemiah. The first question is who starts the work? The second question is why does he start it? Or where does he start it rather? The third is why start the work there and then the fourth question is who works with him? Well, number one, who starts the work? It's Eliashib the high priest. It's Eliashib the high priest. And this beautiful thing about this is this is a multi-generational work. If you look back when Ezra began to build the temple, Eliashib's grandfather was building. He rose up to build the temple with Ezra. Now Eliashib rises up to build the wall with Nehemiah. The high priest starts the work. And it matters that he starts the work because he's the person who's going to lead the people to worship God. Well, where does he start the work? It says they built the sheep gate. They start at the sheep gate. Why start at the sheep gate? The sheep gate is where all the animals are gonna come in for sacrifice. They're gonna come in and be brought to the temple for worship. They start at the sheep gate. Why do they start there? They start there for worship. Two times we read that the, the gate was consecrated and the area around the gate is consecrated because sheep are going to be brought in to worship God. They'll be brought into the altar. They'll be sacrificed because God's people are to be about worship. That's why Jerusalem is being rebuilt so that God's people can worship so the nations around them can see that Israel's God is the one true God and his saving power can extend to the ends of the earth. Well, who else works? The answer is almost everyone. <clears throat> almost everyone. If you continue to read, if we read chapter 3 aloud together, what we would find out is that 30 times in 32 verses, we see the phrase, next to him, next to them, after him. It's just the next person, the next family, sometimes building the wall near where their village might be, sometimes building where their house might be. They're doing work in their neighborhoods for the glory of God to get this wall built. 35 times the word repaired is used. It's repaired over and over and over. And they're just faithfully building a lot of unknown people in the history of Israel working together to make sure God's city is a stable place so that God can rightly be worshiped. We were talking about this passage. I was at our deacons meeting this Wednesday night and one of our deacons, Oscar Brasoza, he just said, you know, we've got the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, but I'll tell you, this list in Nehemiah 3 is a list I'd like to be part of. These are people just faithfully got about the business, doing the work they needed to do. That came from specific towns, specific villages. And this picture is painted in chapter 3 of this broad community collaboration to rebuild the wall so that God could be worshipped. But not everybody took part. Some of the people were just spectators. Look at verse 5. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. 
Their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. You hear this person and his family and this person and his sons and this person and his people, but they would not stoop to serve the Lord. They were a spectator. They came and they watched. They were kind of anonymous, but they didn't get about the work. They were the sort of people when asked to help, they would say, I don't have the spiritual gift of service. I can't do that, right? See, God's people are not a group of spectators. They're a group of participants who are meant to all be about the work of the Lord. That was true 2,400 years ago. It's true today. Every one of us has a ministry. Some of us, that ministry we're about. Some of us, that ministry is just waiting for us to jump into it. Most people did build. It was a joint effort. Lots of men and lots of ladies. Look at verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. He repaired. He and his daughters. Then verse 13, Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. Zenoa is a village that's out west of Jerusalem. They came in from their village to repair this gate that would have been sort of in the direction of their village. The Tekoites, whose nobles didn't do the work, when they finished the section they're on later in the chapter, we find them building another section. Verse 29 tells of this guy named Zadok. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired the opposite of his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. Zadok's working right by his house. He's in his neighborhood doing the work of the Lord so that God can be worshiped. And as we read through chapter three, what we find is that the city is built around 10 gates. Yes, there's a wall that's built, and yes, it's for protection, but there are also 10 gates that are built. They're stabilized. They have doors on them so that people can come and go. Evil could be kept out, but people could come and go. People could come and see God at work. People could come in and see what it looked like to be a people in the presence of God. So chapter three describes all of these people building together. Well, what do we learn from chapter three before we move to chapter four? I think there's some things that God's people learned and we're reminded of in chapter three. And number one is that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Hundreds of years before Nehemiah was written, Isaiah in Isaiah 44, 26 spoke of this city being built. Let me skip ahead here just a little bit. In Isaiah 44, 26, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. God's people are seeing a promise that God gave hundreds of years before the ruins are being rebuilt who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose. Cyrus is the king that sent Nehemiah to do this work, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So Cyrus rather sent Ezra, now we're at King Artaxerxes, who sent Nehemiah, but God promised his people this is going to come about. And their very hands are doing the work God promised that he would accomplish, so they see God keeps his promises. His purposes can't be thwarted. They see God's going to answer his word to his servant, Nehemiah. Turn over just one page or scroll up just one bit in your app. Back in Nehemiah 2, 
Verse 12, I arose in the night, a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. God put something in the heart of his servant, and the city is rebuilt. They're seeing Jerusalem rebuilt so that they can worship. We wait right now for a new and different city, not old Jerusalem, but new Jerusalem that's going to come down out of heaven for the people of God. And number three, if you read chapter three, you see that this remnant community is made up of all kinds of people with all kinds of different skills and they come together for one mission. They come together for one mission. Well, as they come together in their mission, they meet some bullies along the way. They face opposition and potential attack. So Nehemiah 4 tells the story of that. Nehemiah 4.1. Now when Sanballat heard they were building the wall, he was angry, greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. So Nehemiah wants us to know Sanballat is not a good guy. He's angry. He's not just angry, though. He's greatly enraged, and he's jeering. He's mocking the Jews. He's being a bully. He's being a bully. And let's see what Sanballat says to God's people. As we see, you should know the name Sanballat means sin gives him life. What a name. He must not have very nice parents, right? Sin was life-giving for him. And so he just jeers at the Jews. He bullies the Jews. He says in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes on it, he'll break down the stone wall. Now, I don't, I'm not great at math, but when you think about how light a fox is on a stone wall, I think he's saying their wall is going to be a little weak, right? And they're just mocking them, and there are kind of six stages of their mockery or of what they do. First, it's a personal attack. You feeble Jews, these weak Jews, they're not going to be able to do this. But God's people had always accomplished amazing work, not based on their power, but based on God's power. God said, Israel, I didn't choose you because you were more numerous than all the other nations. That's not why I set my love upon you. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul tells the Corinthians that not many of you were wise, not many of you wealthy, not many of you of noble birth. God's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things of the world to confound the strong the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no one may boast before the Lord. He attacks these feeble Jews, but he doesn't know who their God is. Next, he questions their competence. Will they restore it themselves? They don't know how to build a wall. How can these people do this? There's no way they will. He challenges their will to finish the work. He says, will they ever sacrifice? See, that's the goal. The temple is being built so that they can sacrifice. The wall is being built so there's a stable city so that people can come and sacrifice to God. Will they ever sacrifice again? After, will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? It's going to take a long time. I don't think these people can do the work. He looks at the temporal. How can they build a wall out of heaps of rubbish? He doesn't know. Nehemiah's prepared. He's asked the king for timber. Timber is on the way. They will build the wall. 
He doubts the strength of their efforts. A fox is going to break their stone wall. So what does Nehemiah do when he hears these insults heaped upon God's people? Well, Nehemiah does what he always does. He prays when he hears there's trouble in Jerusalem and the city lies in ruins. In chapter 1, he prays. When he goes before the king in chapter 2, he prays. And when Sanballat insults him in chapter 4 and he hears of it, he prays. Look at verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them to be plundered in a land where they are captive. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So Nehemiah prays. When he's insulted, he doesn't heap insults back. We are being trained by algorithms online that when we're insulted, we just heap them back and people click and like and click and like and click and like. And Nehemiah just cries out to God. He cries out to God and in his prayer, he says, God, hear our prayer. He knows God can act. He asks God to give them justice, give their taunts back to them, show them their guilt. But he leaves judgment in God's hands. He doesn't take it in his own. He just prays to God. Nehemiah understood the old adage, you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. He could have lobbed insults right back at Sanballat. Your name means sin gives you life. You might want to sit down, right? But he, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He just cries out to God, and I love this in verse 6. The people insult him. He prays to God, and then he says, so we built the wall. He just gets about the work. So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half of its height, for the people had a mind to work. These people got after it, and pretty quickly half of their work was done. It was built to half its height. But when it was built to half its height, they began to face opposition on all sides. An attack was planned against them. Verse 7, when Sanballat and Tobiah, so Sanballat is talking to the Samaritans, uh, Samarians, they're, Samaritans, they're, they're north. They're, they're coming down from the north to Jerusalem. That's where their attack is going to come from. And then it says, and the Arabs, they're going to come up from the south. The Ammonites and the Ashdodites, they're going to come from the east and the west. They're being attacked on all sides. They heard that we were repairing the walls of Jerusalem. The breaches were being closed, and they became angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. They're attacked from all sides. Now, that sounds like a frightening place to be, but honestly, it might be a decent place to be, right? Jesus said to his disciples, you'll be hated by all men or you'll be hated from all sides on account of me. And one of the things that has happened over the last two and a half years, not just to Temple Bible Church, but to many churches in our nation is that there is hatred coming from all sides. Now, I'll tell you, over the last years, we, we've been hated because we were too conservative on a particular secondary issue. We've been hated because we were too liberal on that same secondary issue. We've been hated because we didn't say that this guy was awful and evil, and we've been hated because we didn't say this other guy was awful and evil. 
People have left us because we said too much about race. People have left us because we didn't say enough about race. People have been so ready to divide, and I'll tell you, we've always got to go, hey, what are we doing wrong and how do we need to repent, right? Because we're not always going to do it right, and when we do it wrong, we've got to repent, but we really want to be about preaching the gospel for the glory of God and doing good work for the glory of God. Now, the, the last little bit of such hatred came in the form of a letter I got about a week ago. Now, I've gotten lots of letters from this person, and I've gotten so many that today I'm going to tell you who they are. Some of you can't believe I'm going to say their name and others really want to hear it. Their name is Anonymous. <laughs> anonymous loves to write letters. Now, it's interesting, the prophets of God, when they've got something that God's put on their mind, they usually sign their name to it, and Anonymous doesn't. I kind of know probably who wrote this one in particular, but it was Anonymous, so I treated it like I treat Anonymous letters. I read the letter and I said, God, is there any truth to this? And sometimes there is truth and we have to repent it, but of the, of the sin that we've been involved in. This one was more your elders are ugly and your deacons smell bad, that kind of thing. <laughs> right? So I read it and I've got a file. I keep all these letters in and I put this letter from anonymous in that file. The file is labeled shredder, right? That's what you do because anonymity doesn't ever carry authority. So, but I'll tell you this, what I don't want to do is argue with Anonymous. What I, I hope that we do is that we ask God to hear our prayer, to make us the people he's always intended us to be. I hope that we seek the Lord and seek the work that's in front of us and get about that work. That's what we want to do. They came against him because the wall was being repaired. Now, it's an interesting thing, this word used for repair in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7, because repair is said 35 times in chapter 3. On chapter 3, it's all the same word. In chapter 4, there's a different word that's used. It's the Hebrew word aruka, and aruka means to heal. It's kind of this idea that a long bandage would be put on something and, and it would stay there until the skin began to grow back over a wound, until healing took place. They heard, they heard that the wall was being repaired, that it was healing. Now, this word aruka, it's found in other places, and one of those places is in Jeremiah chapter 30 that spoke of what was going to happen in Jerusalem after exile. Jeremiah 30, 16 through 18, therefore all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them shall go into captivity. God's saying hundreds of years before, I'm going to answer your prayer about Sanballat and Tobiah. And all who pray on you, I will make a prayer, for I will restore health to you, Aruka. I will heal your wounds, Aruka, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. 
See, it's not just the wall that God's going to heal and restore. It's the people of God that need to be healed and restored. So they pray to God again, verse nine. They get threatened and they pray. An attack is planned and they pray. We pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. But the people are afraid. They're scared. What's going to happen? In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to build the wall. Our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Jews lived near them and said, hey, come out to where we are. People were saying, come to the villages, come away from Jerusalem. You're not going to finish this. But Nehemiah, he looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Do not be afraid of them, but remember the Lord and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So as people... As people of God, when those around us would come against us, we remember the Lord. We don't stand in fear. The presence of God with his people is meant to do two things. Number one, it frees us from the fear of man. And number two, it gives us resolve toward mission. See, to read this and go, oh, wait, I need to fight. They're telling me to fight. I need to fight. That would be like hearing the story about my dad and going, oh, if your son does this, take him fishing, right? That's... The point here is do not be afraid. Remember the Lord and be ready to stand as the people of God on the truth of God's word, declaring the gospel, standing firm. Then verse 15. Verse 15. When our enemies heard it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. See, they're ready to fight, but they don't. They're ready if they need to but they're not combative. They're not looking for a fight. Our enemies heard that God frustrated their plans, which by the way, that's what God does. God frustrates the plans of the wicked. We got back to work. They just got back to mission. Verse 16 says, so from that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held spears and shields and bows. Some guarded, some protected. Others were bearing burdens They were prepared for battle, but they weren't looking for one. And in a day where so many people are looking to fight, perhaps we ought to be prepared for battle, but not looking for one. Well, why? Why? The builders, verse 18, had the sword strapped to his side as he built, and the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles, the officials, to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we're separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah is saying to the people of God, be confident God will be with us and he will fight for us. How could they know God would fight for them? Because God had fought for them. When they were between the rock and a hard place known as Egypt and the Red Sea, 
In Exodus 14, 14, Moses said to the Israelites, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. When they were looking at the promised land, they saw the nations and they were afraid to go in. In Deuteronomy 1, 30, Moses said, the Lord your God who goes before you himself will fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. In Joshua 10, 14, the sun stood still and the Lord fought for Israel. When Sennacherib, the king of Syria, was coming against the people of God, King Hezekiah said, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And for all of us, a much greater accuser than Sanballat and Tobiah, Satan himself, the accuser of the brothers, would heap our sinfulness on us, He would heap our wickedness on us. He would heap our failings and unfaithfulness on us. But there's the Lord who fought the battle of sin and death for us. And he died and rose again victorious for us that we might be about the work that he has called us to do. So Nehemiah gives a charge to the people and he says that we worked tirelessly basically. We worked in our clothes with our sword on our side. We were ready for battle, but we were about our mission to rebuild the wall so that God might be worshiped and the nations might know that Israel's God is the true and living God. Well, what do we learn from chapter four? I think we can learn that knowing that God is our defender magnifies the significance of prayer. Nehemiah just prays and prays and prays and prays. And if we know God is our defender, We ought to cry out to him all the more. Next, I think that we learn that turning to God in times of trouble is meant to be a first resort. We often turn to God as a last resort. Nehemiah turns to God as a first resort. We could learn something from Nehemiah's actions. We can trust God to give mercy to whom he will and justice to whom he will. When Sanballat attacks the people of God, Nehemiah prays and he continues to go about his mission. Number four, we trust God to use the weak things of the world to show his greatness. And number five, we've got to remember that the Lord our God is the one who fights for us. See, it would be lazy and a mistake just to think this passage is about walls and gates. It wants to point us to God's faithfulness to his people. There are 10 gates around Jerusalem where people can go out and where people can come in. Nehemiah is a good shepherd for the people. He wants their protection, their salvation, their flourishing in the presence of God. But there's a different city, a different sheepfold, a different way that we would look at who we are as God's people. Sanballat and Tobiah, they're like thieves and robbers that come against the people of God. And Jesus really describes himself as the way, the one gate in where you can go in and come out. He tries to explain this to people in John chapter 10. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee 
for they do not know the voice of strangers. This was a figure of speech. Verse six tells us, but people didn't understand. So Jesus said, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. I'm the door. I'm the way to life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and life abundant. I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. He's saying to them, there are lots of gates through which you could enter Jerusalem. I'm the one gate through which you can enter into God's presence. He goes on to say, In John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the only way. It's this exclusive claim to relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Some people read that and they say, you know, Jesus was talking about a way of living. My way of living is the only way to the Father, except that's not what Jesus said. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, and the book of Hebrews would, would tend to just explain that all the more to us. See, Hebrews 10 is about Christ's sacrifice for all. It tells the story of his sacrifice for all. And because Jesus has died and risen from the dead, Hebrews 10, 18 says, where there is forgiveness of sins, there's no longer any offering for sin. See, Jerusalem was being rebuilt so there could be offerings for sin. These offerings for sin would happen this way. The sheep would come in, they'd be sacrificed on the altar, but people couldn't truly understand intimacy with God because there was something blocking the way to the presence of God. A big veil, this thick curtain was in the way. One guy, the high priest, got to go behind the curtain once a year to make sacrifice or atonement for the people in the most holy place, but he would sacrifice for himself first because he was a sinner, and if he hadn't done everything just right, if his heart was wrong, there was a rope tied around his waist, he would die in the presence of God and be pulled out. But when Jesus came, something different happened. It wasn't about just going into a city and worshiping from afar. Hebrews 10, 19 says, therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Jesus' flesh was torn so that we could go into the presence of God and know intimacy with him. When Jesus died, that curtain in the temple was ripped in two because there was nothing keeping people from the presence of God other than their sin, and Jesus died to take that away. He rose from the dead to gain victory over death and to give life for all who believe. We can enter the holy places. We can go to where God is through this new and living way, through the curtain, that is, through Jesus' flesh that was broken for us. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near to God as the people of God. But there's work for us to do because of this new and living way. Just like Nehemiah and his people had 
work to do that God might be worshiped. We as the people of God bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiven by his blood, have been given a vocation, a work to do in the world. Well, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 describes some of of that work because the question is now what? What What do we do? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The God who made promises in Jeremiah and Isaiah that Nehemiah saw fulfilled has made promises to his people that we see fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes for us in Jesus. We hold fast to the confession of our faith. We cling to this truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. Death no longer has power over him, and if we're in Christ, it no longer has power over us. We don't just hold fast to our confession. We are part of the people of God. Verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Because Jesus died and rose from the dead, then we're to be in community together. The people of Jerusalem would go out and they would come in to community together as the people of God in the presence of God. And now we, the church, live together in the presence of God. And as we do, as we hold fast to our confession together, we stir up one another to love and good deeds. See, Zadok was rebuilding the wall right around his house. There are these people building right around their villages. I wonder what is the work God has called you to do right in your neighborhood. We do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some because we need one another. We do it in large groups. We do it in small group Bible studies on this campus. We do it in small groups and homes throughout the week. Now, let me tell you, a secret about Christian community because the idea of Christian community is really, really exciting to some. It's really fearful to others. I'll tell you something about every small group I've been in, every family group I've been in, every Sunday school class I've been in. All those people are sinners. They are beautiful, that's right. See, they've been made new by the blood of Jesus Christ. The idea of Christian community might be fearful to you, it might be exciting to you, but the reality of Christian community is something we need if we'll be stirred to love and good deeds. And the writer of Hebrews says, encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. We encourage one another to be about the mission of God. So for us, that's not building a wall in Jerusalem. It's making disciples for God's glory commending God's work to the next generation, encouraging believers to grow up in Christ. That's what we do. What's the work he's called you to today? Would you bow with me as we pray for some of you, this idea of a new and living way of forgiveness and hope through Jesus is a brand new idea. It's not just a beautiful way to the presence of God. It's the only way to the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Maybe your prayer today would be, Jesus, I wanna know the forgiveness and life that is in you. He gives freely to all who believe. Maybe as a Christian, you would say, God, would you 
Would you move me to the work you have for me? Would you stir in my heart just like you stirred in Nehemiah's to be about the mission you have for your people? God, would you have your way with us? God, would you help us to know you're a God who fights for us? You're a God who can be trusted. You're a God who keeps your promises, a God who accomplishes your purposes, and we can trust you because Jesus' flesh was torn and made a way for us to be with you and to be together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.